So to try to talk about this in 20 minutes, again, this is a review course, right? We're trying to help you understand what you need to know and uh, what you need to review. So which of the following conditions is a contraindication to aortic valve replacement? Systolic pulmonary pressure greater than 55, LV ejection fraction less than 35%, lower GI bleeding due to angiodysplasia, Marfan syndrome, none of the above. What's the contraindication? Okay, almost all of you got that, right? It's the unusual patient that does not benefit from aortic valve replacement, particularly aortic stenosis. And if you haven't walked by your cath lab recently and seen a 95-year-old undergoing TAVR, that ought to tell you it's the rare patient that uh, won't get through this operation. So, All right, three major morphologies with aortic stenosis. There's calcified or uh, congenitally bicuspid or unicuspid, these valves calcify early, they have fused commissures, they're heavily calcified and usually in middle age. Rheumatic aortic stenosis is characterized by fibrous thickening rather than calcification. It's a, usually a three-cusp valve and the commissures become fused. And the degenerative aortic stenosis, which is most of our patients, that's also known as senile uh, calcification, it tends to have nodular calcification with three cusps and the, and the commissures tend not to be really terribly fused. So this is a, a bicuspid valve. You can see this really dense calcification and the fusion is underneath that. And this is sort of your typical elderly nodular calcification. In insufficiency, there are two uh, major morphologies here. There's leaflet insufficiency, so they get a prolapse or it's stretched out and attenuated. You get sort of this thickened rolled edges of the cusps over time as they get kind of beat up. You can also have rheumatic disease and then diet-related fen-fen uh, drugs here. And then annulo aortic ectasia, so that's dilation of the sinus aortic, often due to cystic medial necrosis. The whole aorta pulls apart, gets big, and, and pulls apart the cusps. And this just kind of shows how those cusps get beat up over time with insufficiency. Uh, this is a fen-fen uh, valve here, so they get these plaques on the undersurface of the valve, and then this we'll talk about more as ascending aneurysm that results in insufficiency. A third of the patients with stenosis will have the three classic symptoms of dyspnea, angina, and syncope. Angina is more common with concomitant coronary disease. We grade the lesion several ways. It's really the gradient between the left heart and the aorta, so over 40 millimeters severe stenosis or a velocity over four meters per second. Normal valve areas are listed there, and once you get below a centimeter, that's considered severe. Aortic insufficiency, uh, symptoms are typically heart failure, angina is less common, syncope is quite rare. We grade the lesion in several ways. Uh, we look at the left ventricle, so its size both in diastole and systole. Uh, any drop in the ingestion fraction below normal is considered severe. Uh, and then the echo vena contractus, so that's the narrowest part of that jet. If that's bigger than six to seven millimeters, that's considered severe. The natural history of aortic stenosis is pretty prolonged. Morbidity and mortality is quite low. We talked about the rate of progression, just sort of general rules of thumb here. Once they get symptoms, the average survival is less than two years. Sudden death is rare in a patient with aortic stenosis if they don't have prior symptoms. If they have symptoms, they need an operation. It's that simple. If they're asymptomatic, so you're doing a concomitant operation, certainly if they have moderate or severe aortic stenosis, you should replace it at the same time. Consider a patient that has less severe stenosis if it's a calcified valve or they have a, 
of a long lifespan that, that might come back to surgery relatively soon. If there's any LV dysfunction, they should consider surgery. Hypotension in response to exercise, ventricular arrhythmia, severe hypertrophy, and then, of course, uh, severe aortic stenosis, even if they're asymptomatic, is an indication for intervention. A note about the low output, low gradient aortic stenosis patients, so that's uh, a patient that has a gradient less than 30, but also an EF less than 35%. Your echo may underestimate the degree of stenosis because they can't generate the pressure to accurately measure that. Some things you can do to elicit that, you can do a stress echo and look at it. You can do percutaneous balloon valvotomy. So if you crack it open a little bit and they start to get better, that's a sign they've got severe stenosis. Uh, really what happens in practice is they go for TAVR. So you just do balloon valvulotomy while you're putting the valve in, and <laughs> they get better. If you can identify these patients, they, they do have a substantial survival benefit after valve replacement. Another interesting patient subset is the elderly patient in the community that's got aortic stenosis, and they may not have the classic symptoms. It's pretty unusual to find an 8-year-old that's uh, wor you know, working up in the Himalayas, right? They're often just a little sedentary. They don't do a lot to elicit symptoms, but they may have severe stenosis. Anytime you see a valve area less than one, that's a predictor of severe stenosis. So a really good evaluation can help you find these patients that might benefit from AVR. So stress echo is another good thing. You're looking for contractile reserve in a heart that may not usually be used to uh, exercising heavily. So this is your typical uh, heart with aortic stenosis. You get this sort of what they call a bagel heart, right? It just totally obliterates with uh, systole. So that's super thick ventricular hypertrophy, and it's concentric. All right, so the natural history then of aortic insufficiency is a little bit different. So this is a combined volume and pressure overload. They can sustain this normal ejection fraction for a long time because they can recruit extra preload, kind of stretch that heart out, and they'll have compensatory hypertrophy. So they can go a long, long time asymptomatic but then when they do, they can have pretty quick decompensation and might not recover. So vasodilator therapy is used in almost all of these patients before surgery. Sudden death is not common, uh, but just watch out because once that LV starts to taper off, then you got to get on these patients. If they're symptomatic, they clearly need surgery. Asymptomatic, very similar. So aortic root disease, they've got aortic insufficiency repaired or replacement or other operations there, or any patient with LV dysfunction, at rest or chamber dilation. Those need to have intervention. All right, on the flip side, coronary disease, so you're already operating on them for aortic valve disease, even if they're asymptomatic, do the grafts. It reduces the risk of that index operation and does improve their long-term survival, so anybody over about 45 ought to have an angiogram. We talked briefly about that progression of aortic valve disease being unpredictable, so consider it, even if it's mild or moderate, whether you should treat that at the same time. Many of these patients that have aortic valve disease will have other disease in their aorta, so plaques in the ascending aorta or arch, those can be a risk for stroke, so just make sure you evaluate for those. Sometimes it's CT ahead of time, certainly echo can help you pick that, pick that up and consider concomitant aortic resection. We'll talk more about aortic aneurysm in a subsequent talk, but really the indications for surgery with concomitant AVR is about four and a half centimeters and up, because this is an, also a progressive disease. So. Nobody likes to have an AVR and two years later come back to replace their aorta. How does the heart work after AVR? So we list here AVR may improve LV performance. Uh, most patients with aortic stenosis usually have pretty good performance to start with, and even if they're low, they pick up pretty quick. It's the aortic insufficiency ones that may not recover 
uh, as best as you hope. So their pre-op LD dysfunction is the strongest predictor of post-op dysfunction. And the best predictor of what that late LV systolic function is, how small that heart gets, right? So if it reduces into a pretty normal size pretty quick after surgery, that's a, that's a good indicator they're going to do well long term. Almost every, everyone that has LV dilation should have an ACE inhibitor after surgery. And just remember, even a great operation won't fix microscopic changes that have developed over years. Advanced age is the most common predictor of survival and cardiac events after AVR, and that's pretty true after any cardiac operation. It's very effective treatment up to 80 and even after 80. But just remember, once a patient gets to 80, they have limited reserve in other areas, and you know, if they get some renal failure or have a stroke, then, then their outcomes. Uh, again, our, our one senior surgeon say, the train's great when you're 80, but if you get one wheel off, it's hard to get all the wheels back on. They tend to, tend to head the wrong way. So what do we choose? Uh, depends on the age a bit. So children will generally undergo valvotomy and repair whenever possible, uh, or homographs and Ross operation uh, when indicated. Adolescents, young adults, uh, the Ross operation is a terrific operation, repairs as well. Generally after adolescence, it's mechanical valves in younger adults. That's the general recommendation. Later adulthood tend to be bioprostheses. The stentless valves have terrific hemodynamics and have a, a bigger effect on regression of LV hypertrophy, but all of these valves work well. There's no right answer. Mechanical valves can be associated with complications in nearly 40% of patients at 15 years. So just remember, even though they're very durable valves, they do have the complications of anticoagulation and occasionally infection. A couple of comments about bicuspid aortic valve here. So it's frequently associated with both aneurysm and dissection. It's related to the ACTA2 gene that encodes vascular smooth muscle. There's a higher prevalence of congenital, or you could call them genetic abnormalities in the aortic wall, so have a lower threshold for concomitant replacement of the ACE and the aorta when you're in there working on the valve. So I like this clip. You know, we get a CT scan that shows what your aorta looks like, right? And it's oh, 4.3 centimeters. That's what it is. You don't need a replacement. Well, next time you do an operation, watch the aorta during each cycle and see what it does. It gets bigger, doesn't it, right? Sicily, that thing gets big. So it's a dynamic aorta. Have a low threshold for taking it out. All right, two classifications for bicuspid valve. There's the Elcori classification, and this is really just to, to understand how you repair a bicuspid valve. You're going to do that. So type 1, it's normal cusps, but something in the annulus or the sinuses has dilated it out, and that's why it leaks. Type 2, there's cusp prolapse. So you've got a big long one that's flopping down in there, or the commissures come loose, and that's why it leaks. And then type 3 is a thickened or retracted valve. So just know those for valve repair. The Seavers classification is just the pure uh, pathologic anatomy. So type 0 is a pure bicuspid. You only have two leaflets. The most common type is type 1. So that's fusion of two leaflets. And it's usually the left and the right that are fused. And then type 2 is known as a unicuspid valve. All right, here are the 2020 guidelines. So there's a lot of confusion over the last decade about what to do with a bicuspid valve and an ascending aortic aneurysm. So how do you treat those things? So this is the 2020 guidelines. There are four patterns how these things show up. It can be just the root, the ascending, the arch as well, all of it together. But so here are the indications here, right? So 
taking the valve out of it, right? So if you just have a bicuspid valve and it works fine, the general recommendation is waiting till it's five and a half centimeters before you operate on that patient. If you are going to operate on the valve anyway, and it's over four and a half, take it out. If they have an aorta over five and they've got some risk factors for it, so they're hypertensive or family members had a dissection, that's an indication to go ahead and operate on it. And if they're five to five and, and don't have any risk factors, if you can do this safely at a, what we call a CVC, right, is a, a comprehensive valve center. If you've got an experienced center that knows how to do valve sparing root replacement and things like that, it's acceptable to do that, okay? So those are kind of the guidelines. All right, root enlargement. So the idea of this operation is to put in a larger prosthetic valve, and we'll talk about why you'll need to do that. There are two ways to do that anterior on the root, so that's up between the left and the right cusps or through the right cusp into the ventricular septum. Most people do the posterior approaches, so those are back down towards the left atrium, through the left and the non, or through the non-coronary cusps. All of these have someone's name associated with it. You don't really need to remember that. Just remember anterior and posterior. The posterior approach, again, was, which is the most common one, you can cut down between the left and the non. There's the inner leaflet triangle there, and you just kind of expand through the annulus there. You'll use a little bit of a patch here, a prosthetic patch, so that enlarges it a couple of millimeters, and then attach the valve directly to it, and then use the patch to expand that non-coronary sinus and close the aortotomy. So that's the root enlargement part, right? You're enlarging both the annulus and the non-coronary sinus. The other extensive extension you can do posteriorly is move over a little to the right, so you're right down the middle of the non-coronary sinus into the anterior leaflet valve, and you can make a big enlargement here, right? You've gone straight into the left atrium, so you take a big patch here, kind of a diamond, and that expands the anterior leaflet of the mitral valve, the annulus, and the non-coronary sinus with that patch, and then put your prosthetic valve in. The next step after AVR and then root enlargement is root replacement. So we do this for combined valve and root pathology. So that means they have to have dilation of the sinuses of Valsalva. They've got a big root, they've got a small root, and simple root enlargement isn't going to put enough big enough valve there. You've got a dissection that's totally destroyed both the aortic root and the valve, and you can use either a tissue or mechanical prosthesis. In general, this has a higher operative mortality compared to simple AVR or uh, root enlargement. Um, I like the freestyle bioprosthesis in older patients. I think it's a, a great way to do this and, and put a nice big valve on top of all this. So here's how you do root replacement. And again, you cut out all the sinus tissue. You create these coronary buttons. You attach the prosthetic root device to the annulus and then reattach the coronary buttons and then attach the prosthesis to the ascending aorta. Now the Ross procedure is a root replacement, so the advantage of this operation is that it's viable autogenous tissue. It has the best hemodynamics of any of the prostheses that we have. Basically zero thromboembolic events. It has growth potential for children. It's non-anagenic because it's their own tissue, and that pulmonary valve tissue is equal in strength to the aortic valve leaflet tissue. The disadvantage is now you have created two-valve pathology for a patient that has only aortic valve disease. It's longer, it's more complex, it does require, uh, you know, some technical skill to do it. The mortality is double uh, AVR because it's a root replacement. And now you have deterioration of either, and over time, both valves. And the other problem that's there is you can have dilation of that, of the sinuses of the pulmonary autograft because that pulmonary arterial tissue is not quite as strong as aortic tissue. 
You don't want to do the ROS procedure in a patient with other big medical problems because you want the benefit of this operation to last someone decades, right? Connective tissue disease is contraindication. Some people say a bicuspid valve because a bicuspid valve has bicuspid aortopathy. Is there pulmonary arteriopathy? Hard to know, but that's a, usually what these patients have as a bicuspid valve and long-term steroids. You can do it in endocarditis. Best, though, if it's limited to the cusps or has minimal destruction of the annulus. They don't have any other comorbidities and, again, have a, have a good long life expectancy. So here's how you do that operation. You take the whole pulmonary valve and trunk off as an autograph root from the right ventricular outflow tract. You kind of skive it here off the RV outflow tract and make sure you don't injure the first branch of the LAD there. You translocate that whole thing over as a freestanding aortic root and then replace the right ventricular outflow tract with a pulmonary autograft as shown here. And again, it's best for young patients who will get long-term benefit from this. So this is a little video how's that, how this is done. This is the RV outflow tract open here, right ventricle, pulmonary valves right under here. You just kind of shave that off, make sure you don't injure stuff back there. And then you attach it as a freestanding root here. Here we show it reinforcing the aortic root down here with some Teflon or uh, strips here to prevent dilation over time. Reimplant the coronary arteries uh, into the, the uh, autographed root, uh, sort of standard root replacement technique, and then the completed project is over here. So you've got the autographed root here and the pulmonary homograph there. All right, root enlargement, root replacement. Size of prosthesis for AVR. You'll hear this term patient prosthesis mismatch. This is the concept that the valve you put in is inherently too small for that patient's body size. There's all kinds of charts that you'll get from the companies about how to measure this to make sure you don't get one that's too small. But in general, your goal is to get a resting gradient in the single digits, right? That's normal because once you get to double digits, that's mild aortic stenosis and then moderate and severe. So all the valves that are smaller than 21 in general will have a high left ventricle to aortic gradient. So you should consider a root enlargement or re root replacement in a patient if 19 is the biggest thing you can get in there. 21 millimeters, most of our modern valves now are pretty good with that. So general population, 21 is probably okay. If it's a pretty active person that's bigger, again, you should probably enlarge the root or replacement. All of the valves that are 23 or larger will work pretty well in almost everybody. The note at the bottom says the Cleveland Clinic studies did not link any patient prosthesis mismatch with long-term or short-term survival disadvantage. So even if it's a small valve, they'll still live the same. Now, they might be symptomatic, but there you go. Personally, I think you ought to put in a valve that's the right size for the person because it'll save you a lot of phone calls <laughs> from echocardiograms of people that have stenosis, prosthetic stenosis. All right, survival, um, 2 to 4%. Early mortality risk is doubled with concomitant coronary bypass, but that's just because it, it's a two operation, right? You have to, if you don't do the revascularization, the mortality is even higher. Reoperative AVRs, similar mortality, time-related survival, 10 years, about 60% all comers. Modes of death early is heart failure, low cardiac output syndrome, bleeding, strokes, infections. Uh, Device-related is about 20% over time. The type is not a factor. Mechanical devices generally have a little higher complication rate just because they're anticoagulated, so clotting, bleeding, that sort of stuff, but survival similar between bioprostheses and mechanical devices. Risk factors, again, we talked about age. Once you get over 80, again, the risk goes up, particularly older women that are quite small. Um, they may not have the reserve they need to recover. 
their incoming functional status, LV function, particularly with aortic insufficiency. We talked about this. Make sure you operate on those before they really go down the tubes. Uh, coronary disease, again, the, the operation increases the risk, but the survival is lower if you don't revascularize them. Endocarditis, you'll hear more about. That's a risk factor. And then a mismatch, again, a bit controversial, but I would encourage you to make sure you don't have mismatch. Endocarditis, the risk is highest in the first six weeks. Later, it's usually due to transit bacteremia, sometimes from dental work. Up to 50% of these patients will die within six months. This is a problem, prosthetic endocarditis. Thromboembolism is actually quite similar across all devices. It's lowest with the homographs and autographs, but mechanical and bioprosthetic valves actually pretty similar, pretty low. And then from the, the preview question, Hade syndrome, which is GI bleeding, uh, they get these angiodysplasias. You do the AVR, and those resolve, and they, they tend to get better. Uh, don't forget about uh, aorto apical conduits. So you'll get the occasional patient with a hostile aorta, porcelain aorta, or, or a previous operation, bad mediastinal adhesions, um, and bad function. So what you do here is a left thoracotomy. You create an accessory outflow pathway from the left ventricle from the apex. Put a little connector on there like you do with an LVAD, and then you put a valve in between and attach it to the uh, descending thoracic aorta. So then they get sort of double outflow, and, and this offloads the ventricle. Okay, follow-up question. Which of the following is not an indication for concomitant aortic valve replacement, aortic root replacement? Endocarditis involving all the leaflets, small root, dissection with unrepairable valve, sinuses of valsalva dimension 5.5 centimeters. Come on, give me the hundred. Not an indication. All right, so small roots an indication. Dissection that wrecks the valve, so you can do all of that. Big sinuses, you got to take that out. Endocarditis with just the leaflets, you don't have to do a replacement. You just cut them out and put a new valve in.